Today is April 2nd, 2021. The Derek Chauvin trial gets through its first week, and Biden announces a gigantic infrastructure bill. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends and Split the Difference family. We got another fantastic episode for you here today on this Friday, heading on into a great Easter weekend, bringing you all the best news and insights from the left and from the right, and doing our best to split the difference and find that sweet, sweet truth that lies right there in the middle. So let's go ahead without further ado and hop on into our first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, the Derek Chauvin trial kicks off and finishes up its first full week today. Uh, I'm covered a lot of this on Monday as well, but I think, and I have said, I said this on Monday, but this is arguably one of the most important trials that I think has happened probably within the last 20 to 30 years here in the United States. So I feel like it is worth it to go ahead and spend a little bit of extra time uh, kind of parsing through the details of this trial, what's going on, uh, how things are kind of shaking and playing out throughout the the what has happened this week, uh, because I think it really does give a lot of insights into what each side is kind of gearing up for, whatever the whatever the prosecution is saying, what the defense is saying, and honestly, kind of what in, is going to end up happening as the trial kind of comes to a close here in the next couple of weeks and the vast majority of, of Americans are going to be impacted in, in one way or another by the outcome of this trial. Uh, I think that depending on how this trial ends up coming out, you're going to see a, a lot of calls for criminal justice reform. You're going to see a lot of calls for the changing and how a lot of cops are are trained uh, as they're coming in through in and throughout police departments in America. I think that depending on what the outcome of the trial looks like, you're going to see a lot of rioting and a lot of protesting that looks similar to what happened last week or last year after George Floyd was actually killed. Uh, so. <clears throat> I, with all that, I think that it's worth worth it to spend a little extra time on it. So um, I wanted to give a little bit of updates kind of on how it's going. Um, and also, I will say, I, I've got an upcoming guest episode that is going to be rolling out next Tuesday, which you guys all should be super excited for because I brought on somebody that is very, very smart. Uh, he's well-educated, and he uh, we talk a lot, a bit, a lot about uh, this trial and kind of what all happened last year with George Floyd as well. Um, so definitely look out for that next Tuesday. Uh, but there have been multiple exchanges in this trial this week that have been pretty tense, to say the least. Uh, most notably was one with a witness that was an off-duty firefighter that happened to be in and around the area while all of this was going on. Uh, she was visibly upset with some of the questioning that was happening. Uh, a lot of it, I think, was regarding uh, some statements that she had made about the size of George Floyd. Uh, I think the the prosecutor, the defense was looking to say, uh, that George Floyd, uh, you know, was was a really really large man. Uh, that he was uh, all this, but basically that he was posing a, a, a big threat to Derek Chauvin and the other officers that were there. And uh, she, the the female firefighter that was off duty, that was a witness, made a statement during some of her questioning that was basically like, "Oh, he looked like he was a uh, he was a really big man." And then they brought out 
previous statements that she had made that basically were saying that he looked like he was a small and frail man. She was visibly upset with this because she kind of had been caught in some of the nuances of stuff that she had said in the past. And she ended up being reprimanded by the judge for arguing with the lawyer and the judge there. Um, I watched through the entire video. She kind of got scolded for a really small addition to one of her answers because she was basically like, well, I I said that because he had three or four guys that were on top of him at the time. And so she was kind of trying to clear up what she was saying. But it was a very, very tense moment in the courtroom. And I mean, being in the judge's seat would be incredibly difficult. Being in any of the seats would be incredibly difficult. And it highlighted just how tense a lot of these trials are and can be. I mean, you're talking about uh, a man that died in the streets last year and whether or not you're going to hold a police officer, somebody that's supposed to be upholding the law in Minneapolis, uh, accountable for the death of that man. So uh, the tensions and and the stakes are incredibly high. So another notable witness was George Floyd's girlfriend that was brought up on the stand. Um, her line of questioning was difficult, to say the least. The prosecution really looked to highlight, I think, a lot of the positive as- aspects about George Floyd. Uh, they talked a lot and asked her, his girlfriend uh, a lot of questions about his relationship with his mother, uh, who had passed away a couple of years ago. His girlfriend talked about how distraught George Floyd was about her his mother's death. Uh, and I think a lot of the prosecution's goal in this was to try and humanize George Floyd, uh, which is a, is a really, really smart line of questioning and, and honestly a smart line of thinking. Uh, the worst thing that can happen for a jury is for them to kind of disassociate or not really be able to understand the human that uh, that was killed or, or that ended up losing their life in the process of, of what is being tried right now. And, and I think the prosecution was kind of going for and moving towards trying to make George Floyd into this person that like, we can understand like he had his problems. They didn't shy away from some of the drug problems that he had, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, they didn't shy away from the difficulties that George Floyd had faced, but instead they tried to kind of lean into a little bit more. He was a human just like everybody else was. He had his things that he struggled with, uh, and one of the primary things that he struggled with a lot was the death of his mother, which they kind of hinted at, led led into some of his opiate abuse uh, and some of the different struggles that he had with drug addiction. Um, And I I think that that was a, a good line, a good move with the prosecution to do that. So the defense really started drilling down when they had, uh, George Floyd's girlfriend on the stand uh, about George Floyd's opioid, opioid abuse and addiction. So his girlfriend openly admitted that they both struggled with opiate abuse frequently, that they both had free, uh, not necessarily frequent, but they had a, a lot of overdoses that they, that they encountered and that they dealt with. Uh, and the, the defense really kind of honed in on that as kind of like their, their main focus during that line of questioning. Uh, and, their goal of that, obviously, was to call into question George Floyd's character, especially because autopsy reports showed that he did have a lot of opiates, specifically fentanyl, in his system at the time of death. Um, I will say, and this is obviously just my opinion, uh, this is one of the more, I think, disappointing points that the defense has chosen to bring up thus far in the trial. And I know it's only a weekend, but, uh, it, it was disappointing to me that this is something that they focused in on very, very closely because 
I understand on one hand why they chose to bring it up, okay? Because if you can convince the jury that he was some kind of crazed drug addict, they will be much more likely to be understanding of why Chauvin felt the need to use excessive force when he was arresting and trying to control George Floyd. I understand that. But the line that someone has a drug problem and as a result shouldn't be given the same level of respect under the law as anyone else would if they were arrested is honestly just terrible, okay? Cops are and should be trained on how to deal with people that are on drugs of various kinds because, unfortunately, we live in a world where opiate use is incredibly prevalent, okay? Uh, I will say, just because George Floyd was on opiates doesn't mean that it should take four cops sitting on top of them and one cop with a knee in his neck for almost 10 minutes. There should be an extra level of care taken if it appears like somebody is on drugs. But, I mean, especially if the guy is is on the ground and in handcuffs, right? It seems like the cops at that point, training should have kicked in. They should have realized what was going on. They should have realized that there should be some extra care that needs to take place because the man is, is clearly on some sort of drug. Um, and the immediate next step, should, after you have him in handcuffs and on the ground, should be to find help for the guy if he seems to be like he could be overdosing or he could be, you know, a- having a lot of trouble, Okay. The goal of the defense here, though, is to make George Floyd seem like a really, really bad guy, okay? And somehow deserving of being in the situation that he was in because he was the one that got himself into that situation as a result of uh, overusing drugs, okay? However... This is an incredibly emo- play. On, it's a it's a play on emotions more than anything, because we know in the United States that there's no death penalty for someone that chooses to use a twenty dollar counterfeit bill at a convenience store, and we also know that there's no death penalty in the United States for if someone is a drug addict or if they use a lot of drugs. Okay, so the idea and and the thought and the push towards by the defense that he was a bad guy and somehow deserved it is not only awful, but it's a direct play on the emotions of the jurors that are there. And it's not really a logical defense of George Floyd. Okay. Um, Again, I understand why they're going for it. It's an effective, it likely could be an incredibly effective argument in the court. I just think it kind of sucks. Um, so one of the biggest parts of the prosecution uh, was to highlight how George Floyd was acting before the incident actually occurred. So um, uh, it was actually, you know, one of the biggest points of the defense and what they've highlighted a, not, a lot, and I've talked about this, is uh, the fact that there was a lot of fentanyl in George Floyd's uh, system at the time of death. The prosecution worked to highlight that before his death, he was just fine, okay? So the attorneys afterwards... Uh, release this statement. These are the attorneys, uh, the the prosecution uh, in in the trial there for George Floyd, and they said, "quote As the defense attempts to construct the narrative that George Floyd's cause of death was the fentanyl in his system, we want to remind the world who witnessed his death on video that George was walking, talking, laughing, and breathing just fine before Derek Chauvin held his knee to George's neck, blocking his ability to breathe and extinguishing his life for all to see." Tens of thousands of Americans struggle with self-medication and opioid abuse and are treated with dignity, respect, and support, not brutality. We fully expected the defense to put George Floyd's character and struggles with addiction on trial because that is the go-to tactic when the facts are not on your side. 
We are confident that the jury will see past this to arrive at the truth that George Floyd would have lived to see another day if Derek Chauvin hadn't brutally ended his life in front of a crowd of witnesses pleading for his life. So the prosecution here is basically saying Derek Chauvin, although George Floyd did have fentanyl in his system. Derek Chauvin was the cause of death. And that, that's what they have to prove. They have to prove that George Floyd could have lived, even, even just the argument that he could have lived 10 more minutes longer than he did. Okay? They have to be able to prove that Derek Chauvin, or that uh, George Floyd could have lived if Derek Chauvin had not done what he had done. Okay? So... They then showed uh, footage in the courtroom of George Floyd talking and laughing and dancing around in the convenience store shortly before the incident actually occurred. Okay. And I, I know, and I recognize that, you know, with a lot of drugs in your system, if you have a lot of drugs in your system, things can change very dramatically, very quickly, right? Like you may be fine one minute and you may be terrible the next. However, this was very close to the incident. Okay. George Floyd was walking around. He was talking. He had his arm around his girlfriend. He was kind of laughing and joking around with the people around him. They brought in the convenience store clerk and a cashier and the cashier Cashier was like, he seemed like a pretty jovial, nice guy, seemed very personable, didn't really see a whole lot wrong with what was going on. Um, and, and so they were kind of, the prosecution was kind of trying to highlight that like George Floyd was just fine. And then 10 minutes later, he's underneath the knee of a cop from Minneapolis. Okay. So, uh, the prosecution also brought the first witness that walked up while the arrest was taking place. And it was absolutely brutal to watch. It was rough, okay? He broke down in tears on the stand, and they had to pause his questioning for about ten, about a 10-minute break. Uh, they played through the video, and you could see the man that walked up was confused and wondering why the cops were doing what they were doing. And the most unfortunate part of all of it was that the witness, who was a black man, knew what was going on as it was happening. And he was just powerless to stop it. And he said that over and over again, that he was just powerless to stop it. Unfortunately, the back, the black community in America, many of them talk about how cases of police going too far and using excessive, excessive force is not just something that they have seen, but something that many of them have experienced and know all too well. And as a result, when a black man walks upon the arrest of another black man, he immediately assumes the worst that is going to happen. Okay. And this was a kind of a good bit about what this guy was basically talking about is he was like the first witness walked up and he was clearly aware that there was something was not right about this arrest. Something was not right about what was going on. And after Floyd was taken away in the ambulance, not breathing and without a heartbeat because he was completely gone by the time that the ambulance, they were, you know, uh, any type of paramedics or anything were able to get to him. Uh, the guy, the first witness in the video can be heard asking Derek Chauvin why he did what he did. And Chauvin responded with, quote, the guy was probably on something and that excessive force was basically justifiable. OK, um, it was unfortunate. It was absolutely difficult to watch through. Um, but I, I do think that in this first week that has gone by, the prosecution has made a very, very good case to paint Derek Chauvin as uh, somebody that was uh, completely negligent with his duties on that day and that George Floyd was a victim in all of this, okay? But, as I've said before, this is going to come down to whether or not the, the, persecu the prosecution can prove 
beyond a reasonable doubt that George Floyd died because of the incident, that he died because of the actions of Derek Chauvin. If there's any questions at all around whether or not the opiates in his system caused it, or if some sort of outside force like a heart condition or anything else caused his death, then Chauvin will get off and he will likely only be charged with manslaughter, okay? The second degree manslaughter that he that he is also charged with. So this this case is not over. It's not done. There are a lot more witnesses that are going to be brought in. Uh, Derek Chauvin likely will be brought in and questioned as well, uh, which will probably happen in week two, maybe even into week three. Um, so, uh, you know, buckle up because it's going to be a wild ride over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so with all of that having been said, let's go ahead and hop on into our second story of the day. Story number two. So for our second story of the day, Biden rolls out an absolutely gargantuan infrastructure plan. And he's, we've been talking, we've talked about it a couple times on the podcast before, but he kind of released the details of it. And I mean, long gone are the days of small spending bills. They're gone. Okay. Biden is bringing out the big guns. So let's go ahead and hop in. Real quick, this is CBS Evening News doing some reporting on this a day or so ago. Some other news, President Biden today extended the program that helps businesses keep paying their workers during the pandemic. Tomorrow, the president unveils a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure plan. CBS's Nancy Cordes joins us now from the White House. And Nancy, what do we know about this infrastructure plan? Nora, we are talking about a two to three trillion dollar spending bill on everything from roads to bridges to broadband, rail, ports, even the electrical grid. And the White House wants to pay for all of it with tax increases, both corporate tax hikes and hikes on the wealthiest Americans. Essentially, they're looking to roll back the Trump tax cuts that were passed in 2017. And so they're already facing stiff opposition from Republicans. Some big tax hikes ahead. All right. So, um, uh, Mr. Biden's plan, uh, there's, there's a lot in this package. So I'm going to try and walk through a lot of this right now, because I do think it's incredibly important to be thinking about a lot of the stuff that could be coming down the pike. It has a lot of implications on everybody's everyday life. Uh, it also would have, like they said, a little bit of tax hikes in it as well. So what all does this plan entail? So Mr. Biden's plan would provide $621 billion for what they're calling surface transportation. That includes $174 billion, or about 28% of the transportation portion, on electric vehicles, okay? That includes a network of 500,000 electric vehicle stations using electric vehicles in bus fleets and replacing the federal government's fleet of diesel transit vehicles with electric vehicles. It would also offer tax incentives and rebates for purchasing and using electric cars. About $115 billion would pay for fixing roads and bridges. $85 billion would go... That would be set aside for modernizing transit systems and $80 billion for a growing backlog of Amtrak repairs and improvements to stuff like that. It would also go to airports and ports and waterways and other stuff uh, similar in that nature. So another $650 billion would go for, quote, quality of life at home. Okay? So this would include... $213 billion to build, preserve, and retrofit more than 2 million affordable homes and commercial buildings. This includes the construction or rehabilitation of 500,000 homes for low and middle co- middle uh, income owners. 
An additional $111 billion would go towards clean drinking water, including replacement of all lead pipes and service lines. So this portion of the bill would basically aim at bridging the wealth inequality app by going through and actually providing people with or fixing up broken and dilapidated housing, uh, uh, presumably across the country. Okay. So uh, $400 billion for elderly care. This is improved access to quality, affordable home or community-based care for elderly people or people with disabilities. And would also vastly expand the Medicaid program to make more services available for people in their condition. Uh, $300 billion in domestic manufacturing. So this would be about $50 billion going towards semiconductor uh, manufacturing and resource uh, research, and about $180 billion on new research and development with an emphasis on clean energy, okay? So there's a huge portion, obviously, as you can already tell, there's a gigantic portion of this bill that is focused very, very, very specifically on clean energy, climate change, making things green, Okay. So that's not all of the bill at all. There are hundreds of billions of other dollars that are for other efforts, but all of it hasn't been, hasn't been completely fleshed out and shown just yet where it would go. So how would all this be paid for? Uh, it includes a series of tax increases on corporations, companies specifically, uh, by raising the corporate tax rate to 28% from 21%. Okay. So, uh, Trump lowered the tax rate, the corporate tax rate to 21%. I believe it was at 35% before that uh, during the Obama years. So Trump lowered it back, lowered it down a very, very substantial amount. I mean, Trump was probably one of, in terms of, in terms of four taxes, Trump was likely one of the best, I mean, one of the best presidents since Don, since, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, if you want lower taxes. Okay. The Donald Trump was your dude. Biden's coming in and he's like, well, we're going to meet it halfway. We're going to set it right at 28%. And this supposedly would help to cover the cost of spending over the next 15 years. Okay. So he's saying that by raising taxes on corporations 7%, that it would be able to pay for the $2.3 trillion infrastructure bill over the next 15 years. So he also is proposing an increase on taxes for U.S. multinational corporations to 21%. So currently, uh, United States multinational corporations get a bit of a tax break, which is ridiculous. Uh, the plan would also eliminate a rule that allows United States companies to pay no taxes on the first 10% of returns that they locate investments in other countries when they locate investments in other countries. So basically, if a company in the United States goes and invests in things in other countries in order to make money, they don't pay taxes on the first 10% of the money that they make if they do that. What? Why? Just a classic, you know, tax break that rich people get because uh, they have friends in Congress. So it would also likely look, uh, he would, they would look to raise taxes on the very wealthy as well. I'm not totally sure. They haven't given a lot of details around what this would look like. It would likely be people, uh, $1 million in income and over. Um, so it would affect probably a very small portion of people in the United States. Uh, so the bulk of this would be paid for by corporate taxes, corporate tax increases. Uh, and literally none of it will be paid for by the pairing back of the current federal budget which is another way that money can be found, right? So if you want to be able to spend new money on other things, you can only really do it 
in one of two ways, or a combination, I guess, of these of two ways, if you're the federal government. Either A, have to bring in more money, or B, reduce the money that you're spending right now so that you can use that money elsewhere. Just simple mathematics, simple accounting there, right? Well, they're not paring back any of the federal budget because they never do. Uh, they're going to be looking to spend more money. Uh, so at this point, there's literally no chance at all. Like, I mean, this thing has a snowball's chance in HE double hockey sticks of actually getting through the Senate. No way. Very, very unlikely for it to pass in the House at this point as well. Uh, Republicans immediately said that it was a non-starter because the price tag was way too high and uh, it being paid for with tax hikes because Republicans hate tax hikes. Uh, the Democrats are also jumping into the fray as well, though. They realize that if only three Democrats in the House or one Democrat in the Senate choose not to vote for it, then it wouldn't pass even if they tried to force it through with budget reconciliation because with budget reconciliation, they have to have at least a simple majority, okay? So Democrats from New York have already come out and said that they won't vote for it unless it repeals the provision in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that doesn't allow for people to write off their state taxes on their federal taxes. So... Basically, some states like California and New York that have inordinately high taxes, okay, state taxes, for the longest time were able to justify that because people would basically just turn around and pass the buck to the federal government. Well, Trump did away with that because he doesn't really, you know, because it really increases the burden of the, you know, taxes on the rest of the country because they're all having to pay for the incredibly high tax burdens of these people in California and in New York, right? Uh, New York obviously doesn't like that because all of these people are now looking around over the past couple of years and they're like, wait a second, my taxes for my state taxes, I'm having to pay them now? Mm, maybe I don't want to live in California and New York anymore. And that's why you're seeing, I don't know, the gigantic exodus of people leaving California and New York right now. Um, all of a sudden, all these people that were able to write off these hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases, millions of dollars in some cases, uh, taxes on just pass it right on over to the federal government, no longer can do that. So they're like, mm, I'm just going to pick up and go one state over. So the Democrats are now tossing around the idea, again, of pushing this through budget reconciliation. It's the same thing that they did with the COVID bill. They know that they can't kill the filibuster because Joe Manchin, the Democrat out of, Democrat out of West Virginia, no way he's going to vote for it. Republicans will never buy into killing the filibuster, obviously. So the only way that they'd be able to get things passed strictly along party lines is through reconciliation. The problem is you can't get everything passed through reconciliation for a couple reasons. One, it has very specific rules around what it is that you're allowed to actually pass through with budget reconciliation. It can also only be used three times a year, okay? And they would have, you know, basically, they would have shot two out of their three bullets within the first four or five months of the year, which definitely would not be great for them with all of the other incredibly expensive packages that Biden still has planned. So in other words, if they wanted to pass everything strictly along party lines, strictly through budget reconciliation, they would only have six times to do that between the beginning of Biden's presidency and through the midterms, which if history tells you anything, they will likely lose a lot of seats in because that almost always happens in the midterm elections. The parties that end up doing bellwether during the presidential election end up flipping over. And that's what happened for Trump. That's what happened for Obama. It's normally what happens. Okay. 
So uh, they've already used up one budget reconciliation bullet. If they shoot another one right now, they're, they're going to be getting what they want. But they're going to be cramming it through, and it's not going to be a very good look. Um, so honestly, just not a great way to govern the country. Uh, so at this point, no way that actually gets passed through. You're going to have to see if Biden can come in there and work his magic being the bipartisan wizard that he claims to be. Uh, I would be very, very surprised if anything close to the $2.3 trillion that Biden is wanting to pass through on an infrastructure bill actually happens. Uh, there are a lot of very good aspects around this bill that I legitimately do think that America needs a lot of help in and a lot of growth in, and they need money thrown at, okay? However, throwing over $2 trillion into infrastructure right now after you just threw $2 trillion at COVID, that's a lot of money out of the door very, very quickly. So with all of that, that is the end of our second and our last story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into the last segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week was actually we uh, got to go over and babysit some good friends of ours, son, his little baby's only a couple months old. We got to go over and babysit him, see him a little bit and hang out uh, with COVID and all this. It's been really difficult to be able to get around and see a ton of friends. Now that things are kind of starting to loosen up a little bit, we're kind of able to get out, see people for the first time in a while. And uh, we were able to babysit a um, little guy for a little while while they were able to go out and enjoy a dinner. Uh, so it was fun getting to hang out with him for a little bit uh, and getting to see him for the first time in a long while. So I always got to enjoy some of the little things in life because that's always fun. <laughs> so with all that, that is the end of the show tonight. Thank you so much, or today, tonight. Uh, thank you so much for stopping by, for checking us out. Uh, as always, y'all remember to look me up on Instagram at Split the Difference Podcast. I am also on uh, Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference and my, my website at splitthedifference.com as well. Drop me some likes and subscribes. All of that good stuff helps so much in getting my name out there and getting more people listening into the podcast. And it also helps me to curate good content that you guys actually enjoy. As always, y'all remember, we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are always going going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor.